cliffcentral.com. Yes, indeed. It's Thursday, which means another chance for us all to get into the bones and the meat of the big stories of the week. This is also your chance to hear some really interesting opinions from people who are expert and who have been paying attention to the news at a time where you maybe are too busy trying to keep yourself afloat. You're worried about coronavirus. You're worried about all kinds of other things. And fortunately for you, we have the best in the business here with us today. Now, if you don't already know these gentlemen, then let me disabuse you of all your preconceived notions. The first of our guests this morning is none other than Brooks Spector. It's very good to see you again, Brooks. He is none other than a, a former U.S. diplomat in Africa and East Asia. He's written for the Daily Maverick from its inception, and I've read many of your pieces in the Daily Maverick, Brooks. You're also post-retirement a Bradlow Fellow of the South African Institute of International Affairs and a writing fellow of the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Advanced Studies. It's good to see you. How are you, my friend? Good morning, Derek. It's, uh, it's Gareth. Sorry. Uh, I, I'm good. I'm I'm sleepy, but I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to wake you up so early, <laughs> but, need... but then this week I don't think there are many uh, many U.S. Um, political analysts who've been sleeping. Uh, it's been a hell of a week, right? Yeah, no, I had to go look at a map to find Afghanistan so I could figure <laughs> out what was going on. Well, maybe former president. I mean, that's all I seem to be talking about this this week and, s- and reading about and paying attention to. Yeah, I'm sorry that we have to make you do it again, but there's lots of stuff we still have to unpack, and I'm sure that this issue is not going to go away in a hurry. I also want to introduce this morning someone who's well-known to this show. He's been on a number of times. He's a freelance journalist, columnist, speaker, and independent researcher who loves debunking myths and misconceptions. He sometimes gets into trouble for these, but that's one of the reasons we love him. And he is our guest this morning, no stranger to the burning platform. You can find him on the Daily Friend. His recent columns include, Should Vaccines Be Compulsory? An Insecure Paranoid Government is Dangerous? And The Limits to Growth Affirmed. Wrongly again, he is Ivo Fechter. How are you, Ivo? Good morning, Gareth. I'm very good in yourself. Very, very good. Good to see you too. And Pumi Mashiko, who's my co-host here and uh, the return champion on the burning platform every week she adds her little bit of of of, uh, of of maybe there's some sarcasm for me especially when it comes to local political issues but there's usually some real good insight that comes with it so we're happy about that never sarcasm always <laughs> genuine 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 just yeah. an inquiring mind and and you're often shocked like our president is hey everything shocks you oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got lots to get into. So let's start. Let's start with you, Brooks. I want to play you a clip um, in in a minute of the the, the 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 Secretary of State or the Department of State and and what they had to say about this Afghanistan situation. Uh, Joe Biden's come under some criticism in the last little while for the way that the withdrawal has happened. Before I play you anything, what are your what are your thoughts on on what is essentially a very messy, ugly? And not particularly satisfying situation. Certainly it's embarrassing for the United States. I think that's roundly the opinion of most people who saw what happened in Afghanistan in Kabul airport, for example, those hideous images of we've seen of people falling from planes, just desperately clinging to them, trying to get out of the country. We've seen the Taliban retaking pretty much the whole country as well. Um, it's, this is not a great withdrawal. Is this Biden Saigon? I've got two points to make for you, Gareth. Uh, first, there was no good choice for Joe Biden. No matter what he did, no matter what the government did, it would be a bad choice with a nasty outcome. And I think he felt that the sooner they made the choice that they cut to the bone on this, 
the better off they were. Because point two, because they could then concentrate on things that were actually more important. I mean, this has been a generation where the the international attention of the U.S. has been sucked into alternatively Iraq or Afghanistan, neither of which were central to American security and international position. The fact that they got out, the fact that no Americans have been killed for a number of years, actually, uh, in combat in Afghanistan, points to the fact that there were other things to do. There were other fish to fry, and they have been sadly neglected for the last number of years. This gives a chance to sort of start again. And the other point, of course, is that this was not Joe Biden's war. Uh, this was Joe Biden's ending the war. Uh, you go back a year plus, and it was Donald Trump who negotiated with the Taliban for this withdrawal. And Joe Biden felt, as I understand it, obligated to, to carry out an agreement that the government had made well or badly, but to get it done and get out of there and be finished with it. The fact that there is on the airport tarmac, thousands of Afghans desperately trying to clamber onto a C-17, um, even if they have to hold on parts of the wheel well, is, is terrifying. But you have a situation anywhere in the world where the collapse of a government happens and a new bunch of people come in who have a reputation for bloodthirstiness and vengeance, you're going to have that kind of thing happen. And it's terrible to watch and it's appalling to have to observe. But it's the way we are as people. All right. It, it sounds kind of like, oh, well, too bad. I mean, that's kind of how it sounds. I know that that's not what you mean. But if, if you look at a, 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 an administration that is so focused on optics, I mean, you know, everything around the masking and coronavirus, everything around kind of Kamala Harris, the whole the whole thing here, the optics of this are just terrible. And it's bad for Joe Biden. The fact that he only said something uh, after a, a number of hours, if not a number of days of, of, uh, of, of saying nothing, we've heard absolutely zero from the rest of the administration. And then this from, from the same people. Here's that, that clip. I just want you to comment on this because it seems to me that they're living in a parallel universe, which doesn't have a whole lot of reality attached to it. You mentioned the Taliban being this group of bloodthirsty savages, which is the only way to put it. But look at how the State Department has reacted to this, and tell me if this guy is even connected to the same world that we live in. The UN Security Council issued a joint press statement earlier today calling for a new government that is united, inclusive, and representative, including with the full and, full and meaningful participation of women. The Council spoke with one voice to underscore that Afghanistan must abide by its international obligations, including to international humanitarian law, and ensure the safety and security of all Afghans no. and international citizens. Oh, I'm sure that the Taliban are just quaking in their boots after that, because clearly the, states, the State Department believe that the UN are going to step in here or that someone's going to step in and help. It sounds almost like this guy believes that talking about inclusive, inclusivity and diversity and women's rights is going to make the Taliban sit up and take notice. That is probably one of the weakest things I've ever seen. From the U.S., it's outrageous that that guy gets on TV and says that on C-SPAN, thinking someone anywhere is going to listen to him. Crazy. Well, Price's comments were almost an exact quote from the agreement that Donald Trump's yeah. administration signed with the Taliban. 
I mean, the phraseology was almost exactly right down to the commas. I mean, it was it was what had been adopted from that negotiation. In are, we really a try, are we going to blame Donald Trump, who's no, he hasn't been president for a number? Of, are we going to blame him like like people are still blaming apartheid here in South Africa 25 years later? Are we going to blame him for this when he may have handled this very differently? Maybe he would have even handled it better. Who knows? But certainly to blame him when no. this is a this is a this is a Biden administration spokesperson. Surely they must take some responsibility here. Well, they've obviously taken the responsibility to make the decision to move on. Uh, but you can't get away from I mean, before we came on for your discussion, you had that that lovely little moment where where George W. Bush was sort of d- dancing in his seat. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. And, you know, if you want to look for the original sin, uh, That's you have you to cast your mind back to George W. Bush. Uh, if when they first attacked the al-Qaeda in the mountains in Afghanistan in 2001, if they had said, okay, the place is run by a bunch of despots, but we've done what we have to do and we've dealt with the people that caused enormous harm to our country, let's move on. Nobody would have said anything because it was almost unanimous worldwide that that was an appropriate act to carry out. What happened, and you have to figure out who to blame, what happened was that version of a commitment somehow metamorphosed into something very different. Let's fix all of Afghanistan. Right. Let's get rid of the other people. Let's preserve. Brooks. Yeah, go ahead. But Brooks, that, that you know brings something that and and is again back in the news. Um, the, the the Congress. A representative, uh, Barbara, Barbara Lee, right? Yes. So she's yeah. the only person back then that said, let's just think about this a second, how we go about this, how we, you know, go in there and, and take out the emotion. So everybody at the time was very emotional. I mean, they were like, what, 2,000 odd Americans, 2,600 Americans had died Three, in, 3, 000, in those attacks. Yeah. Yeah, had died and and they were they were emotional rightly so you know we spoke earlier in the show about how we saw uh, George Bush coming out very strongly on ground zero kind of saying the rest of the world is going to hear from us you know so there was retribution that's what they wanted and here they are trillions of dollars later 20 years later and and the decision really to pull out is an economic decision now because it's just well, they were no only, longer sustainable. Brooks, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were only 3,500-odd troops um, up to a short while ago in Afghanistan. Now, then they've had to put more people in because of what's going on this week. So, ironically, the withdrawal has ended up with, with an addition of troops to it. 3,500 troops is not a lot. I think that the U.S. has probably more people stationed in Germany at this point than they did in Afghanistan in the last little bit. Oh, you know, by, by an order of magnitude. More. Right. So, um, so I mean, well, it, it couldn't have cost, it couldn't have even cost that much to have kept them there or to at least have phased it out a little more gracefully. This does look bad for Biden, is my point. It really doesn't help him. No, it's, there, there's no question in my mind, as, 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 you're, as you're pointing to, there's no question in my mind that the manner of the withdrawal was was handled badly. Mm. Uh, they did not, after all, even discuss this with the sitting government of Afghanistan, as febrile and feckless as it might have been. They right. didn't even have a conversation with them about this. 
but the writing was on the wall for sure. I mean, uh, at the peak of the commitment in Afghanistan, there were 117,000 troops. Uh, that obviously was never going to be sustainable, down to a couple of thousand mm. who were not in combat roles, but who were the backbone for what passed for the Afghan army and air force. Suddenly you take that away and there is nobody to maintain the air, the air command and control system. There's nobody to provide the communications backbone. Right. There's nobody to provide uh, the the management of intelligence data and so forth. And it would have been inevitable in some way, shape or form hmm. that the Afghan government would have begun to disintegrate slowly well, or you, faster. You, but not over to know, I'm interested to know what you what you believe the the impact, the, the psychological impact then of the manner of withdrawal on a, the Taliban, but B, on, on the rest of the world, just seeing America scrambling in this manner to, to leave. And now they're putting troops back in and they've got the Turks coming in with them. It's the, the shambles that it is. I'm interested to know what you think that psychological impact on the optics of what America world police is. Well, if you go back to the press conference, the media conference the Taliban had, the day they arrived in, in Kabul, or actually the afternoon, if you saw it, uh, they were using a, you know, sort of your standard place for doing this. They even had the little bottles of artisanal water on their desk. <laughs> they look for all the world like And sanitizer. Who yeah. were veterans of, of international conferences. And I, I like to think of the way they were delivering themselves as the Taliban version 2.0. Mm -hmm. Instead of that bunch of people who, who were lopping off hands and making well, women I don't uh, stay inside better. their houses. They were trying to give the image of an organization that now understood the world was a different place. And in some ways it is. In when they first came into power. A very place. Okay. <laughs> yeah, hang hang I mean, on, because Ivo seems to have a huge disagreement on this front. So Ivo, let me bring you in. You've been, uh, you've been sitting there listening. What do, you, what do you have to say about all of this? Yeah, I'm sorry, but I, I think I think that's naive to think that the Taliban has somehow reformed and is somehow, you know. No, I didn't say they the, were. I just said that they're making the illusion. They're making the demonstration that that's who they are. Yes, well, I'm sure they're, they're trying to make that demonstration uh, while the U.S. still has a few guns on the ground. Um, but, you know, I mean, Ayan Hirsi Ali, I was reading something she wrote yesterday, and she said that, the, you know, the U.S. was happy to fly the rainbow flag over Kabul last month in, in an act of meaningless virtue signaling. Um, and now it's just gone and thrown Afghanistan's gay population to, to the Taliban wolves. And, and, you know, it's the same for, for uh, Afghanistan's women. It's the same for all of the people that worked with the, uh, the, the, the U.S. government and the U.S. military uh, in Afghanistan. Um, there was no arrangement to get them out and get, get them visas and get them to safety before uh, the U.S. pulled out. I mean, this is an absolute tragedy. Um, China has already told Taiwan to take note um, that this is how the U.S. operates. It abandons its allies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it's they did this. They did this, they did this with the, West the, they did and, this with the Kurds. The Times of Israel. Mm -hmm. The Times of Israel is the Times of Israel is also reporting that what you're seeing with the Taliban's march is the you know shows the the growing kind of 
like minimalization of American influence and then running out of Afghanistan in that manner actually shows that they have significantly been reduced in the eyes of of not just the militants, but also what they are willing to do to support their to support the, their allies. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a tragedy for the world. Um, I, th- I think it's it's not just America's own standing. I think it's the standing of liberal democracies in the West in general. You know, and, and you know, it, it's, it, it brings you to a broader issue, really. And, and that is, is there a way for modern liberal democracies to win a war? When last have modern liberal democracies actually won a war, a significant war? You know, it goes well, back to America the... America not... Not okay, Vietnam, back, not Korea. <laughs> not Korea. Iraq is not really one. Libya, they just went in and bombed the crap out of Gaddafi and then left and left the place due to civil war. Um, you know, so, so uh, Ivor, a, I don't. I don't think you've ever been to Korea, then, have you? I haven't been to Korea. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, South Korea, but South Korea was back in the fifties. You know, South no. South Korea is a good example. South, South Korea is a good example. Uh, of a country that was supported and that continues to be, and it continues to host a very significant American presence. Um, go go yeah, back and, to what and, I said right at the beginning, which is that the best case that can be made for this withdrawal is that it finally frees the country from having to be focused almost obsessively on either northern Iraq or Afghanistan. There are too many other things that are more important. If, Of course the Chinese would tell Taiwan that, see, pay attention now, this is a lesson for you. And of course the Times of Israel would, would say that kind of thing. But this gives an opportunity, this gives an opportunity, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a guarantee, but it's an opportunity for the U.S. to spend a rather larger amount of its energies and time focusing on really important issues like it's dealing with China, it's dealing with the resurgent and difficult Russia, its relationship with Western Europe, and its internal rebuilding, rather than spending all of its energy and all of its time focused on a place in Central Asia where there was, up until 2001, no discernible American interest. I just uh, yeah, okay. what about Can the I, financial implication? Yeah, I just I mean, uh, they, before they, they, before we move on from that, Pumi, I just want to say something about Afghanistan itself. I mean, the way that the Afghan military entirely abandoned their posts, the way that the government fled, you know, with the flames on their backs, the way everybody just Ashraf Ghani. the way these people capitulated, and and you know, all the people that we saw at the at the airport were grown men of fighting age who had no interest in defending their own country. It's almost like the people of Afghanistan, and we know how tribal and how undemocratic that part of the world is. But my God, there's just the women and children were abandoned. Old men were left to to look after the villages. These guys who had been supposedly entrusted with keeping the place going after 20 years of training and all the equipment that a man could wish for, They've just abandoned their posts. This is the the greatest show of a lack of courage from the Afghan people. Let's just leave America out of this for a second that you could possibly imagine a dereliction of duty at the highest level. I, I can't imagine living in a place where, where the men won't where the men won't even come to the defense of their own women and forget that America just for a moment that they pulled out. 
There is no way that a country could survive if this is how their men behave. I, I agree. You sound, you sound exactly like my wife. And she said the same thing <laughs> the other day. And your wife must be, do you must, wife must, be, did, <laughs> she must be smart. It was appalling to see, it was appalling to see Ashraf Ghani, the president. Yeah. Like flying off with suitcases right. of money. I mean, he left money on the tarmac. That's like, uh, but that's one. But that's one of the on. problems that they. That's one of the problems that they created there. You know, instead of building a nation, the U.S. kind of spent twenty years creating a corrupt and lazy bureaucratic class. You know, they were far less motivated to take bullets for the country than they were to, to score dollar-denominated yes, contracts. But hold on, I want to go back to something Brooks said earlier, which I think is absolutely true. It rings in my ears that if they had decided that this was a counter-terror operation and they went in, bombed the living hell out of the, the, the Al-Qaeda, as they were then, and the Taliban who were harboring them, and said, we're not here to do nation-building. We're not here to do humanitarian work. We're not the world police. We're here to get some retribution for what happened on 9-11. Everybody would have been perfectly happy with this. How did it get confused? How did it get to a point where suddenly it was all about aid or about military contracts or about trying to entrench democracy or any of this nonsense, which is not the U.S.'s responsibility? That's where Biden made a very good point in his speech the other day. You know, I'm not sure that everybody would have been happy with that. You know, if, if you look at, at, at uh, Hillary Clinton in, in Libya, right, who went in hard and fast took out uh, Gaddafi um, and, and achieved the short-term objectives, you know, because that's one of the alternatives, one of the two alternatives I think the U.S. has is, is go in hard and fast, send in special forces, send in mercenary specialists. Drones. Um, crush your drones, you know, crush your objective and, um, and claim victory, boom, and then leave, you know. But then what happens is you leave a power vacuum. Um, so you end up with a country that is either vulnerable to civil war or a country that, um, you know, all the bad guys just well, recover and, and, and I, take I hate, over. I hate to or say, the place would have been right for picking for a foreign invader. I hate to say the obvious, but that's where we are now anyway, despite these intervening 20 True. years, right? So, True. so this is a moot point. So the alternative. So the alternative yeah, but there is, no is to occupy Afghanistan for... not just for 20 years, but for 80 years. Mm -hmm. Do what they did in South Korea. Right? Give a younger generation, which has only just got to know freedom and opportunity, give them a chance to grow up into the leadership of their country, right? Wait until but, they're 50 um, and 60 and lead the country. Why should American, um, why should America American taxpayers? America can't afford to do that anymore. Why should, uh, America why sh cannot afford to do that anymore. Uh, Brooks, right. I mean, I'm looking at the American deficit, just the, the deficits, the trillions of dollars in debt that the American government is in. You were talking earlier about taking time and money and resource worrying about other things instead of this war in Afghanistan. Is the economy one of those things that they should be worrying about? Well, of course. I mean, the, the, the economy in the short term is bouncing back pretty well from uh, the COVID shutdowns. Well, that, that, that'll, uh, happen. that'll happen if you put $6 trillion back into it of artificial printed money. Sure. You know. Well, that's, I mean, the, the point of, of that kind of policy is to is to supercharge purchasing power to give people uh, resources, but unemployment is now down to about five and a half percent too. Uh, which, if this country could achieve, just imagine what it would look like. <laughs> Amazing. The uh, yeah, it would be, it'd be a it'd be a very different kind of place. Uh, the money that has been passed uh, by Congress or will shortly be 
passed by Congress will be uh, close to revolutionary in terms of its share of, in, of, of money going into infrastructure building or rebuilding. Uh, the only other real equivalent is the, ni- er, the early 1930s in, in the recovery from the Great Depression. Uh, but I, I, I want to go back to Ivor's point as well, which is they should have simply stayed there forever and ever. Ivor, that's, you know, that's very nice. That's, that's really akin to you saying to somebody else, why don't you go fight my battle somewhere else with somebody else, and I'll sit there and I'll applaud. And that really isn't fair. That isn't appropriate. And let's look at Afghanistan in a historical context. Uh, it is its nickname, if you look it up, Afghanistan, Poland, Graveyard of Empires. Hmm. I mean, Alexander the the Great tried this. The British British sent an army of 15,000 men to uh, Kabul in 1842. How many people came back from Kabul when the British tried this? One person made it back. It's really quite an extraordinary tale. The Russians sent 115,000 soldiers to Afghanistan. They they had 10% of that of that amount were casualties. It's an extraordinary thing. And by the time they left, the Soviet Union was about ready to collapse. And this, you know, these are cautionary tales that you have to. This is these this is how should we, This is truth on the ground rather than armchair speculation. There are the examples are too many to simply say no problem. We should have stuck it out forever. Yeah. Afghanistan is America's is, in, I'm, I'm sorry, is America's I, withdrawal the end of the American Empire. I think I think that's a little I think that's a little different glib, kind of question. You know the situation with the Soviets in Afghanistan was very different from the situation of the Americans in Afghanistan. Um, the, you know the Soviets were fighting actually were fighting the Americans by proxy. You know, the Americans went in there and gave the Mujahideen a whole lot of support, a whole lot of weapons that they didn't have. If the Americans hadn't got involved in Afghanistan mm. during the Soviet invasion, the Soviets probably would have crushed Afghanistan and taken it over and it would have been a, become a Soviet republic. Um, so I'm not sure that that comparison really holds up. Um, you know, it, it's it's cute to say our oh, graveyard of empires, but I, I'm not sure that those comparisons are all that instructive. But um, that's what you know, the, the Afghanis... Is, I thing is, it, ta- it takes a long time, I but I want to get back to a point a, a point made earlier that, that this would have just been an expense for the Americans and, an, and, a, and a perpetual expense. Can you say the same thing for Europe? America spent a whole lot of money in Still Europe, are. rebuilding Europe right. and turning Europe into a, into, into a, a liberal, peaceful democracy. Uh, America spent a whole lot of time and effort occupying Japan and turning Japan into you know, a modern, uh, peaceful, liberal democracy. Um, they spent. They spent. How, how long have they been in Korea now? I mean, this goes back to the 50s, so we're talking about 70 odd years. Um, this is how long it takes to build a nation. You know, it took Western countries centuries to crawl out of the Dark Ages. Um, so, what are the chances that any violently repressive theocracy can be turned into a liberal democracy in just 20 years um, with limited casualties? I don't think it can. But European ha- ha- has it has it been a net cost to America? To support Japan, to support Europe, to support South Korea? I think, no, I, I don't think I so. Think I, think, I think the whole world has become richer by, by doing that. I, I'm the, going the to give I mean, if Brooks a moment to respond, and then Pumi's got a question, but I do want us to move on to some other things. Brooks, go ahead. You, you want to respond okay. to Ivo? 
Sure. I just wanted to, I just wanted to point out uh, that in Europe, after World War II, the, the original understanding was that the Europeans themselves would have to make substantial contributions, both in money, money and human resources. In Japan, the same thing happened. Mm. In South Korea, the same thing happened. Each of, in each of these examples, it was the commitment of the individual nations concerned that made the difference. The Marshall Plan was not simply a buck, a wheelbarrow worth of cash from the United States and say, saying, here, take it, it's yours. Mm. It was an investment. And some of it was even on commercial terms. In Japan, this most significant contribution was the demand for supplies and support during the Korean War at the beginning. Afterwards, the Japanese recovered their own skills and became the economic powerhouse that they are. The Afghan government never demonstrated that kind of effort or commitment. Neither did the Afghan people. Says, I mean, the Afghan people didn't either. And that, that was, I think, a point yeah. that we, we saw come to a really ugly head this week. Pums, do you want to throw in one last thing here? And then I do want us to look at South Africa for a little bit. I'm interested in this idea of the death of empires because mm. I mean I'm looking at at where America is today and it's and it's kind of diminishing influence is the first thing but also they did finance to this thing for the past 20 years at the end of 2020 they were what two trillion dollars is what they had debt financed this thing at just the interest on that alone mm. in the next six years is going to be 6.5 trillion. Right, and there's a study, a PwC study that's that's projecting to 2050 that the American economy is going to be lower than that of China, and they can't fight wars. They pull out, is what we are seeing. Mm. Is this America's influence in the world declining? And has is Afghanistan that that last bastion where they had to hold? I think it's uh, two two quick points because I know Gareth wants to move to to some other interesting topics. Uh, the percentage of the economy uh, versus the percentage of debt is actually lower than it was. We're talking in percentage terms, not absolute numbers. It's lower than it was a generation ago. The interest rate is probably at its for the last 60, 70 years, it's at the lowest point. You, right. It's almost free money to borrow, and you'd be foolish, in fact, to tax higher to raise the money to do certain things than it is to borrow at, at the ridiculous level of, of interest that's being charged now. But to your larger question, it is almost certainly inevitable that China will have a larger gross domestic product than the United States in the, by the end of, of this decade. But they are, after all, four times larger in population terms, and they have been growing at 7 8% a year uh, because they have also been fun financing this through debt and through, effectively, the printing of their own currency. So the Chinese have their own debt crisis to cope with, as well as the, the one thing most people tend to forget, they have a population crisis. They... For two generations, they had a one-child one policy. They are going to have a huge overhang of older people to care for, and a much smaller tax, a much smaller base of working-age people right. to carry that for the next 10, 15 years. 
So uh, from geopolitics and from Afghanistan, who knew we'd be talking about that 20 years later? Uh, but here we are now with, with South Africa and lots to talk about here. So our South African government has come up with this brilliant idea, and I'm sure you saw the story on Fin24 yesterday. Our government has this brilliant plan, talk about paying things, Pumi, that we should pay an additional 12% of our earnings into a state-managed fund because, of course, you know, these guys run, they, they, they manage money so well. They gazetted a green paper on comprehensive social security and retirement reform, um, as if we have the luxury of that in this country. We don't even have enough employed people at the moment to be a sustainable tax base. But they reckon we should initially be obliged <laughs> to contribute up to 12% of our earnings and up to a certain ceiling, uh, which is currently proposed as being something around 276,000 rand a year. This means that if you earn more than that, you'll pay a maximum of 12%, how nice of them, to the fund. And the first 10% of this contribution will go to the mandatory fund rather than a private sector retirement fund. The next 2% will go towards unemployment insurance. So just off the top of your head, um, Ivo, how do you feel about this? Uh, another 12% of your money going to government? It's obviously a great investment. You must be chomping at the bit. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have it lying in my bottom drawer. It's not doing anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the government is proposing to, to take my money and to do something productive with it. You know, it's um, the same guys. I'm really looking forward. Same I'm really guys. looking forward to all the great services and stuff I can get from the government for what really is a very, very small amount of money. Um, no, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. The, the whole thinking um, behind this is, is wrong. And it's, 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 they're thinking about it the wrong way around. They want to be a modern welfare state. But the thing is, all of the successful welfare states in the developed world, um, they didn't start out as, as these social democracies, right? They, they started out making their money, getting rich on the back of free markets and free trade and industrious people. Um, you know, uh, you know, Holland was, was owned, owned the seas in the 17th century. Uh, Britain, the same sort of thing. They, they became rich on trade. Only once they became rich, could they afford to implement substantial social safety nets, um, you know, and start offering things like like free health care and, and uh, you know, government pensions and, and unemployment insurance and so on? Well, um, and even then, those those welfare measures but, but, came but at a even at cost. even at a base level, Ivo, even at a base level, you, you know, you, your economy needs to be growing in order for you to be able to sustain programs like this. And ours is shrinking. We, we have major, major problems going on in our economy to have. Lofty ideals yeah. like this isn't about visionary leadership. It's about a detachment from reality. No, I mean, that's that's one of, you know, I, I wrote a column about the basic income grant or, or universal basic income recently, and, mm -hmm. and that this is part of what they just proposed in this green paper. And one of the big objections um, is, is uh, comes from Franz Grenier, from the, the, the IRR uh, CEO, and he says, look, this would allow the, the ANC government to congratulate itself on a job well done. You know, we're looking after the poor and all of that without the pressure of having to enact any of the underlying economic reforms that we so urgently need to, to reestablish a thriving, growing economy. So, you know, it'll buy the votes in the next election, perhaps. But um, that's all it is. It's a voter bribe. Um, it, puts a, it puts a plaster on the symptoms. But it doesn't address any of the underlying problems that, that yeah. cause the country's high unemployment and poverty levels. Um, we need to start thinking the other way around. You know, you can't start spending money 
um, that you don't have before you have it. Uh, we need to start growing the economy first. Um, and, and then we can start thinking of, okay, now, now that we've got growth going, now that we mm-hmm. can actually actually have people that we can afford to tax, Right. Or that can afford to be taxed. Now let's see what we can do in terms of in terms of social services. I mean, Pumi, when I read the headline out to you earlier on the show this morning, you just kind of rolled your eyes because you're a you're a small business owner, you're a mum, you've also been through lockdown. This is not a, a unique story in South Africa. There are so many people who are close to the breadline or who are trying to keep themselves and their families above that as far as possible. No one can afford an extra twelve percent. Um where we've got 30 million South Africans living on less than 20 rand a day. And and about the same number. That's what people. our reality looks like. And, 30 and million South Africans the scariest living on less part than of 20 that, rand a day. The scariest part of that is that that 30 million people, they don't have a job. So that 20, 30 rand a day that they need isn't coming from a place where the economy is ge- generating it and manufacturing it. That's government money and it's going to run out. And, and as South Africans, what we need to actually start thinking about is we need to start thinking differently about who our government is and what economic policies the next government is going to put in place. It's not going to come from the ANC government. They don't have the ideas. They have no new ideas. And they've shown us in the past 20 odd years that they are unable to even the little that they have been entrusted with, look after it and grow it. So... That's just the, the, for me, that's where we are. As South Africans, that's where we are. There's like, we have to think about the next government and what the next government can do for South Africans, for our economy, for the people, before we start thinking about basic income grants and additional taxation and, and, and. So it seems to me you and Ivo are mostly in agreement about this thing. Uh, Brooks, having the object, objective point of view of someone who, um, who really has looked at, at many of these things from the U.S., uh, when certainly when you were a diplomat from the u.s point of view what do you make of policies like this in a in a in a in an environment like ours in south africa couple things uh i've been listening to the interplay between the between the other two people uh with interest the reason why retirement is more or less universally set at the age of 65 uh, owes itself to a very interesting little historical quirk in Germany in the 1880s, when they first instituted old age pensions, they calculated that the average worker would die somewhere between the age of 67 and 68. Therefore, <laughs> if they contributed to money going to pensions while they were working, the government would always be able to pay for old age pensions because the average worker would only get two and a half years worth of that payment before they passed away. And as a result, every country in the world essentially has accepted the 65 uh, benchmark as the point at which the money goes the other direction, even though the average person in most countries now lives 10, 15 years longer than that. And that produces a difficult problem even if you run your system well. My second point would be, if you re- if that 12% were invested in the way which everybody agreed was maximally effective and efficient and produced returns on investment and created jobs and built buildings and fixed everything, 
most people wouldn't have much of a disagreement with that because they would be able to look around and see the benefit. On the other hand, I used to take the train from Johannesburg to Cape Town because I'm a train nut and I enjoyed the ride. Mm -hmm. And now I can't do that because the tracks are gone in places sufficient that they can't make a continuous trip anymore. Right. Uh, where one of my wife's uh, sisters lives, it's very close to the main line, and you look out there, the rails are gone, and the overhead cabling is gone. The fence around the rails that used to be there, that's gone too. So that kind of productive investment has been going the other direction. But none of the maximal projections of doing it right are likely to happen. My own view is that a basic income grant is wrongheaded in the following way. The problem is not that people don't have money. It's quite clear they don't have money, that the average person lives on that very small amount of money that they get uh, now, uh, the amount of money which most people if they were to think about it, could not figure out how to survive on that money. Mm -hmm. What people need is a way of learning and being employed. And the government's responsibility at this point has got to be one of putting young men to work, putting young men to positions, especially men, positions where they will have the skills to do that work, and to do things that will contribute to the nation's infrastructure rather than detract from it. I mean, the studies that uh, we've all seen say that if you have not had a job or a in basic income uh, effort by the time you are 35, you will never have one. Mm -hmm. And that dooms a population to never earning a living. If it were me and I were king and I were in charge, I would set up something like the Depression Era Civilian Conservation Corps in the U.S., which took three million young people and put them to work building trails and parks and mm -hmm. roads and shelter, I mean, all, you know, the whole range of things. Three million people in the U.S. was a considerable number of young men put to work in the middle of that period. And many of those people went on to have successful business, government, private industry careers, and they write about their experience because it changed the way they thought about their relationship to life, country, their family. And, and, but I'm and not in charge. Uh, no, but I love that. And, I, and it does teach people skills, which is something that's sorely lacking in our education system. We seem to be churning out lots and lots of people who uh, have some, some, some grasp of, of some very basic ideas, but not necessarily skills. And that is precisely the part of our economy, which is a whole at the moment. We, we need people who can, who can weld and solder and build and fix and repair and put in pipes and, as you say, build trails and, you know, chop wood and things that are very basic. And, and none of those are, are things that, that young people are learning these days. They look down upon those things. They consider them to be beneath them, even if they're unemployed. I mean, yeah, I, have some, I have some issues with that proposal. I mean, I, I, I agree with the broad sentiment, um, you know, that one of the big problems is that we have this, this young core of people who – are basically basically undereducated and and have and have really no employable skills. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is one of the reasons we have the structural unemployment problem. Um, it's not that companies don't need workers. They can't find workers that can actually do the job. Mm-hmm. Now, the government already has this extended public works program, you know, which is supposed to sort of do that sort of thing. I don't think it does it very well because it basically pays people to dig holes and fill them up again, mm. um, you know, which which doesn't really contribute or, or contribute at all to skills building. Um, but there's a bigger thing. The jobs need to be created by the private sector ultimately. And, you know, the government needs to uh, make that possible. And at the moment, the government <laughs> isn't making that possible. It is bleeding capital out of the economy. Um, another 12%, that is that is capital, right? That is what people would otherwise invest in small businesses, in, in, in bigger businesses, you know, in, in growing the economy, in creating new jobs. Um, th- that just won't happen now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the government could could turn around and say, look, we are going to focus more on education. We're going to focus more on vocational training um, and actually get people to win by the time they hit 18 or 20, that they're actually employable. Um, you know, I could support that idea. But uh, but ultimately, the, the, the impetus must come from the private sector and the government needs to reduce the burden on the private sector, make it easier for the private sector to grow, to start new businesses, to grow them, to start to, to grow employment. Because um, otherwise, we're all going to end up working for the government. And frankly, that is not what I've considered to be job creation or productive work for that matter. You know, you see all these people waving flags at the side of the road. They do nothing for this country. They're a dead weight cost. I don't think the question is if the government would reprioritize. I think the question is, can our government do that? Does no, I don't, think, I, I, don't think, I don't think they can. You know, mm. um, they, 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 they're mired in this sort of socialist ideology that, that – they are responsible for creating jobs. They are responsible <laughs> for growing the economy. Um, they're not. They're not. They are responsible for getting the hell out of the way. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, yeah. no enterprise has ever been furthered by, what was that old, that old quote? Uh, you know, no enterprise has ever been furthered more by, by, and by, by the alacrity with which government has got out of the way. <laughs> I have two things that you you may not be attuned to with the, uh, the example I quoted, the Civilian Conservation Corps and those three million, those were not permanent jobs, first of all. Those were mm-hmm. meant to be stopgap measures until such time as the private sector could begin to pick up these people and pick them up because they were more skilled than when they went into the process. Second thing is they had to save a portion of that money that they did earn and send it to their families as a support to the people who were not working. But third, they had to be involved in educational training as part of their their effort, the enlistment of a year or whatever it might have been. The idea was very clearly to produce a, a core of young men who were better able to join the ranks of the employed at the end of the time once there was a possibility of employment than before they went into it. The problem with the extended uh, uh, government employment project, I can't remember the precise name of it now, is there's no end point to it, Hmm. and there's no particular training to it, and digging holes and filling them up or picking up trash isn't job training. It may make things look a little better than they did before, 
but it doesn't improve the skills or the capabilities of the people, of the people digging or so, filling the holes. So, Brooks, on that this note... This is always been one of the problems that our government has had. Sorry, Gareth. Brooks, this is always one of the problems that our government has had. They have no exit strategies, you know. So, great idea to have some kind of... Um, <laughs> What are you laughing at? No, I'm laughing Gary. because we started, you know have- we started this whole conversation about Joe Biden's exit strategy in Afghanistan. Now we're talking about how our government have no exit strategies. I'll, I'll continue my they, point. They don't. A you know, they, start, they, they started out with a great idea that says, how are we going to lift millions of South Africans out of poverty? Let's, let's have some kind of stipend. Let's mm. start there. But they had no idea how those people who get that stipend, whether it's, it's a child grant, whether it's an unemployment, grant, whether it's a disability grant, how are we going to get these people off that grant system? They had no idea of what the exit strategy was going to be. Similarly with public works, they, this extended public works program has no exit strategy. Yeah. So they bring you into the program and then what? Then you're here permanently. That's well, the problem. It assumes permanent failure as well, which is so cynical. And, and I like Ivo's comment earlier about how really this, this is mostly a vote buying exercise to our government. It's not really an attempt to to change or assuage the difficulties of people who have no jobs. But, you know, uh, Brooks, just listening to you talking about these programs that were initiated back in the days where America was a bold country. I mean, you mentioned the, the, the resurgent economy post-COVID, but in reality, I think there's something like 10 million jobs available in America at the moment, and no one's taking them. And a lot of that is because there's been so much free government money plugged into the system. You know, some people are earning more just sitting at home than getting a job. You've got employers who are willing to give huge starting bonuses and they're still not getting enough staff. And I wonder if if the very lessons that America did teach the world or that we should have learned from America in the early part of the last century are precisely the lessons they themselves have not learned if you look at the way that the US economy is behaving at the moment. And all of this free government money that we talk about in South Africa, which isn't for free, is similarly not free in America. And it seems like governments everywhere are also just trying to spend their way out of a pandemic and trying to spend their way out of a hole without any exit strategy there either. What are your comments on that? Well, I mean, part of the problem with this, with the the mismatch between jobs available and people looking for work, uh, one of them is the skills mismatch. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of people who have skill set A, but the employers want people with skill set B, C, or D. Right. And until people in the first category can take that set of can can bring those sets of skills or gain them somewhere and put them to work, there's going to remain that that core. The second part of it is it requires in many cases for people to up stakes and move somewhere else. Uh, one of the fastest growing parts of the economy for a number of years was South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And there aren't a lot of people in New York City desperate to move to South Dakota. Right. Uh, for, a lot of, for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is that it's almost like a foreign country. And <laughs> I mean, you know, if you, if you've been to New York and I don't know if you've been to South Dakota, but no. you, you know what I mean. It, it, and it, South Dakota, by the way, is not like even moving. South Dakota is not even the best Dakota. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that problem, too. Um, there is a housing shortage in South Dakota. Yeah. There is a employee shortage in South Dakota, and there are jobs available, 
but you have to get there. You have to move right. there. You have to find a place to stay and so forth. Um, just on a very personal note, uh, my older daughter lives in the United States and uh, she has since COVID started the lockdowns and the shutdowns, she has largely been out of work. Now she's begun to create her own employment prospects. She teaches by, via Zoom and other social media kinds of, of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but she gets unemployment compensation, but she has to file every week that she has had at least three efforts to get a job, whether it was an interview or an application or an inquiry. And as long as she does that, she will get the unemployment, but she has to show that she's actively part of the looking for work workforce. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it will run out and she'll be really stuck. But uh, right now, at least, there was that cushion. But unemployment compensation isn't a government gift. It's money that you paid in large part while you were working. Right. Uh, so this is this is like our payback. UIF. Yes, indeed. And as a result, it, it's the cushion that keeps you from starving while you're looking for work rather than simply the permanent solution to poverty because we give you more money. So uh, you, you answered a question just now by saying if you were king, this is the kind of program you'd implement. I'm going to wrap up this conversation. We're almost at 8 o'clock. And, and let Ivo and Pumi tell us if they were king and queen, what they would do to solve some of these questions around universal basic income, around welfare, around retirement, basic e- economic questions that any government should be asking itself. I doubt very much, and I'm sure Pumi and Ivo will agree with me before I even have to ask them, that our government's ever thought of these things in terms of anything but theory and ideology. But what would you do if you were king, Ivo? Well, you know, enacting a basic income grant is a great way to make sure that we'll never actually be able to afford one. Um, so, you know, I, I would I would take to heart what, what I just quoted earlier from Franz Grenier, that um, – you really need to look at the underlying underlying economic reforms. Um, we need radical uh, economic transformation to quote to 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 appropriate. Oh, really? New Karl Niehaus, uh, Jacob Zuma. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that no, but that but that means freeing the economy. You know, we need economic freedom. Um, uh, there's there's well, all, all the now, evidence now you're borrowing from Julius to... Malema's songbook, <laughs> economic freedom. All yes, right. exactly. <laughs> Econo- I'm an economic freedom fighter. Um, <laughs> I, I actually wrote a column years ago about how upset I was that that Julius Malema called his lot of socialists the the EFF <laughs> because he appropriated a term that he really doesn't doesn't deserve. Um, but we need to look at freeing the economy to let let businesses actually grow and 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 create the jobs um, that that uh, that we need. Have have government focus on education and specifically primary and secondary education, um, which is which is really poor in this country. You know, the fact that only what, what is it about four percent of of um, people who go into grade, kids who go into grade one, one in, in uh, come out with a pass in mathematics at the end of matric. Mm. You know, that is a core problem. Right. So, so focus on, on sort of preparing people for a workforce. Um, uh, and, and then, and then let business, let business free, leave business free to, to grow and to oh. create the jobs that the, that the country needs. But I can hear loads of millennials and Gen Z people saying, Oh, hang on, Ivo. 
can't I just become a YouTube uh, star or, a, or an Instagram influencer and then I don't have to worry about any of this stuff? Um, Pumi, what do you think? If you were queen, what would you enact? Uh, well, you're on mute, Pums. One, I would lower taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I think two, less barriers to entry for business, right? So less paperwork, less kind of cumbersome things that you have to jump over before you can start a business, before you can run a business successfully. I would remove as many barriers to starting and running businesses as I could. And I love the concept of some kind of civilian service for young people because it would give you an opportunity to reskill those people. It also give you an opportunity. I think you were talking about millennials and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. earlier right it right. also gives an opportunity to rewire they're thinking about each other and about their country and the service that they give to their country and that will have the an added benefit of maybe creating a little bit of social cohesion you know if you got to spend time with each other you can get to know each other mm-hmm. a little bit better and then you'd hate each other less <laughs> that would be very, very welcome. So, uh, Brooks, thank you very much. I'm sorry that you had to become a spokesperson for the United States government. That wasn't our intention this morning, but you've also given us some tremendous insight into some of the history. I mean, I, I was fascinated about that thing about employment age that you brought up. I think that's really useful information. I know. So it's, always good, it's always good to check in with you, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Brooks Spector. Ivo, always good to see you too, and um, thank you again for a, a drop or two of cynicism mixed in with uh, with some good research and some paying attention to all the fundamentals that some of us just don't have the inclination to do on a daily basis. Thank God there are actual journalists doing this. And Pumi Mashiho, your value is just inestimable, especially when you we would make you queen if those uh, if those proposals were yours to be accepted. <laughs> I don't know how popular you'd be with everybody, but you would with me. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all very, very much. The Burning Platform is brought to you Love by you Nando's. Guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Burning Platform brought to you by Nando's every Thursday here on cliffcentral.com. And if you want more of this, you can listen to any of the previous episodes. They, they stand up even now. Um, most of the conversations we've had about all of these things, including Afghanistan over the years, I think you'd find that there's some consistency going on here, which is a rare thing in the media. So thanks for joining us. We will see you tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Cliff Central. Dot com.